into Psalm 85. Psalm 85. We are in our Psalm for the Summers series. And last week we did 84, this week we'll do 85. We'll try to get up through close to Psalm 100 by the end of the summer. And if you've been on the uh, Facebook site and you're a friend of mine, you'll notice that I've been talking my book uh, recently, Heaven on Earth. It's come out in the Russian edition. And so I brought a copy of the Russian edition, and it's back on Audrey's table so you can see it. And you'll recall, you know, it took me a year or so to write this particular book and years to do the research. And uh, this book is, says dedicated uh, to the members of the President's class, Dallas, Texas. Well, what you want to do is you want to go back there and look at the Russian edition and look at the dedication, and you'll see how the President's class is spelled in Russian. <laughs> and it's very interesting, but uh, you'll be able to make it out, and Audrey will show you where it is. Okay, so we are in Psalm 85. Everybody have that? If you need a Bible, there's one on your table. And um, I would call this a psalm or a psalm of restoration. And it's written in the form of an intercessory prayer on behalf of the nation. So the psalmist is praying for the nation. That's what, and it's going to be sung in worship. And... Uh, I'm going to put the, uh, the dating of this psalm somewhere during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So if King David reigned around 1000 AD, uh, BC, then uh, the Babylonian captivity is taking place in the 500 BC. Okay. Israel has been very disobedient to God. God has allowed this great empire, the Babylonian empire, to sweep in and uh, take the Jewish people captive. And so that's what I, where I think this, I think that's the context of the psalm. Okay? So what we have is the psalm, the psalmist is asking God to restore the people to their land. Okay? And what he does, first of all, he require, he, he, he uh, recalls God's favor in the past. First of all, he thinks about another time God delivered them. And so that's what you see in uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 in Psalm 85. Notice the verbs. Lord, you have been. You see that in verse 1, line 1? Look at line 2. You have brought back. Look at verse 2 in line 1. You have forgiven. Look at line 2 of verse 2. You have covered. Look at verse 3. You have taken away. Look at the end of verse 3. You have turned. See, all these verbs are describing past events. So first of all, he's recalling past, a pastime when God has rescued his people. Okay, so that's what this psalm, I believe, is about. It's a prayer that God will rescue them again. Okay? So let's look at Psalm 85. Okay? Lord, you have been favorable, this would be in the past, to your land. Now, how has he been favorable in the past to his land? Look at the rest of verse 1. Here's how he did it. You brought back the captivity of Jacob. So, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name has changed to Israel. He is, he is restored and brought back his people. 
uh, in some past time. Now, what time is he describing? When did God rescue his people in the past? Well, we know he rescued them during the, you know, the Exodus. But, and there's some debate, when you look at commentaries, they give you all different times that God has rescued his people, but I think that he's describing uh, an event when Israel went out to fight the Philistines. And they were, uh, in a sense, defeated in a battle. And so they come back to their land, and uh, they decide, they have a big idea. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant out there with us when we go to a battle. We'll take God right with us. Remember, God dwelt between the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's presence was. So they decided they're going to take the Ark out into battle. Okay, And uh, at that time, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were located in the city called Shiloh. Jerusalem was not always the capital of the Promised Land. At one time, when they went into the Promised Land, and they, you know, they uh, built the tabernacle in a sort of a permanent fashion, they built it in Shiloh, which is 20 miles north of Jerusalem. In uh, the day, what we call the West Bank, it was on the west bank of the Jordan River. And so that was the capital in those days. And so they take the, the Ark of the Covenant out there and they lose the Ark. The Philistines capture the Ark and kill a lot of them. So I want to show you that story, if you don't mind. And keep your finger here. And I want you to go over to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now I'm going to have to turn you to a few passages, extra passages today, which I don't usually do, but I think for context purposes, this would be good for us. So turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in my Bible, we have a title that the publishers put in there, and it says, The Ark of God Has Been Captured. And that's what this little section is about. So when you find 1 Samuel, go to chapter 4, and look at verse 1. Now when Israel went out in the battle against the Philistines, and they encamped uh, beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped beside Ahab. Then the Philistines put themselves into battle array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So we have 4,000 lost in this battle. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. And when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, Whoa, what's going on over there? You ever watch golf tournaments on Sunday afternoon? And it's really close. And the leader is maybe on 
you know, hole number 15. And the guy who's second only one strip behind is on hole 17. And suddenly there's a great shout. Oh! On hole 17. What do you think the guy on 15 thinks? He must have gotten a burden. Well, what we have here is when the ark comes into the camp, all the Jewish soldiers just shout, oh! And the Philistines go, whoa! What's going on here? That's what you have happening. That's verse 6. They said, what does the sound of the great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, they understood that. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. Such a thing has never happened. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians and all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines. You see the general just giving them a charge. You know, Be like men. Get out there in the battle. That you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. And there was a great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured. And Hotley and Phineas died. So what we have here is uh, this ark, which was sitting in Shiloh, was removed from the tabernacle and brought out in the battle, and it was captured. So now, the ark is gone, from Shiloh. The presence of God is no longer in Shiloh. And the people are there having to fend for themselves. Now I'll stay there in that passage because you know a little bit of the next story. <clears throat> the prophet Samuel, daughter-in-law, is pregnant during this period of time and she ends up having a baby after the battle of those. And so if you look in that same chapter, chapter 4, and you go down to verse 20. One, you see what she named the baby. It says, Then she named the child Ichabod, saying what? The glory has departed from Israel. Why? Because the ark has been captured and because, because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So I think this is the the backdrop for our psalm. Okay. The psalmist says, restore us like you did in the past. Okay. And uh, we know that eventually, guess what? They got the ark back. And God's presence was with them once again. So this is what the psalmist is asking for. So I want you to go back to the, to the psalm, and on your way back to Psalm 85, a stop at Psalm 78. Okay? On your way back, just sort of stop at 78, and then we'll get back into our text. So look at Psalm 78. This is one of the psalms we dealt with last year. 
And when you get there, find verse 59. So we have Psalm 78, verse 59. And look what it says. When God heard this, he was furious. By the way, he, what he heard was, in verse 58, uh, it says that he heard that they had fallen into idolatry, they had made graven images. Verse 59, when God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So he forsook the tabernacle of, look, Shiloh. The tent he had placed among men. And he delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance, which means Israel. Fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. So what we have here is we have events that took place in Shiloh, several events probably, when Israel was just not in God's will, and they ended up losing the ark, and God's presence had departed. So now look at Psalm 84, and or 85 rather, and look at verse 2. So he says, bring back the captivity. And in verse 2 he says, you have, meaning in the past, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. That's line 1. Line number 2, you've covered their sin. That's a parallelism. You have forgiven their iniquity and you've covered their sin. Now when God forgave the iniquity and covered their sin, then things got better. So, uh, now when he says, you forgave their iniquity and covered their sin, you need to make sure that you realize that it was this sin, it was sin that got them in trouble in the first place. Not personal sin. We make such a mistake when we think of all sin as just being personal. You lie, you cheat, you steal. Uh, this is national sin. This is when a nation doesn't trust God. And Israel wasn't trusting God. Israel had fallen into idolatry. Israel trusted its military to save the nation. They acted on superstition. Said, well, maybe if we can get that ark out there, we'll be okay. Uh, they're not caring for the poor people. Like God told them to care for poor people when he delivered them from in the Exodus. They're not taking care of the strangers, the immigrants in their midst, who come under the umbrella of Israel. And uh, there's all kinds of corruption in leadership. <laughs> national sin. <laughs> so it's this national sin that has gotten, gotten them into trouble. The sin is national, and the deliverance, therefore, will be national. It will be a nation that is delivered. <laughs> so we need to be thinking of sin more often in terms of corporate national sin versus just individual sin. In the Western world, we always put such an emphasis on individuals. Well, I did this, I did that, Lord forgive me. That's true that we do sin individuals. What, what, what happens when leaders lead nations into sin and into idolatry and forsaking faith in God? Uh, they get themselves in trouble, especially the nation of Israel. So look at the result. Verse 3, you've taken away your wrath because you forgave sin. The nation's been restored. You've taken away your wrath. That'd be line one in parallel. You've returned 
you have turned from the fierceness of your anger. So, this is the result of uh, how he restores them. In the first instance, because of their sin, he turned his back on them. But once they repented, he turned back to them. And he interceded on their behalf. Now you notice all the yours in there. In verse 1. Your land. Do you see that? Verse 2. Your people. Verse 3. Your wrath. Verse 3. Your anger. God has done it. It's God who delivered them into the hands of the Philistines, and it's God who delivered them out of the hands of the Philistines and ended up getting the ark back. So, that's the past event. He recalls a past deliverance. Now what he does is he pleads for deliverance now. The nation now has fallen back into sin, and I believe they're in Babylonian captivity. And so what he does is he pleads for deliverance. Now look at verse 4. Restore us. Look at verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. Or verse 2. Look what he said. You have forgiven, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all of what? There. You see that? That's in the past. But look in verse 4. Restore what? Us. Now he's talking right now about his people. Restore us. See? O God, restore us, O God, of our salvation. Turn us back. Restore us. Turn us back. And he describes God as the God of salvation. Now, don't think of salvation here, again, in personal terms. The word salvation basically means deliverance. So he says, restore us, O God of our deliverance. Deliver us out of this mess that we're in. So he's talking about an earthly deliverance, right? They're in Babylonian captivity. An earthly deliverance, not deliverance to heaven. See, when we think about salvation and deliverance, we're always thinking about going to heaven. They're thinking about an earthly deliverance. It's a political deliverance. We're under another political regime. Deliver us from this political regime. Deliver us politically. We always think of God delivering us spiritually. It's much more than that. Especially if it's national. A national deliverance versus a personal deliverance. So that's what the plea is. Restore us, verse 4, O God of our salvation. And cause your anger toward us to cease. So is he angry with them? I guess he is. Cause it to cease. Well, we know back in verse 3, he was anger, anger. He was angry with the in, with the people in the past. Doesn't it say that? Look in verse three. You've taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. In the past, he turned from his anger. His anger ceased. He said, "Restore us now, just like he did in the past, and allow your anger now to cease." You see how he's relating the two, comparing the two. So that's what we have in this particular passage. Then he asks a series of questions. He says this. Will you be angry with us forever? He's angry with them right now. How long is this anger going to last? How long did it last, the Babylonian captivity? Seventy years. It's a long time to have somebody mad at you. Some of you have been mad at somebody for seventy years. 
he offended you or something seven years ago. You're still mad. Well, God was mad for 70 years. One year for each Sabbath year they did not observe. God said every seventh year you're to observe a Sabbath. And guess what? They didn't observe it. They missed 70 Sabbaths over 490 years. And God says, well, I'm going to extract from you 70 years. Now, the writer at this point probably doesn't realize it's going to be 70 years. Because how long is this going to go on? Is it going to go on forever? And he sure hopes that it doesn't go on forever. He says, verse 5, will you provoke your anger to all generations? Now, these are either rhetorical questions or these are, you know, questions of a heart where he's pleading and saying, how long is this going to last? I don't know if we can take it anymore. Look at verse 6. Will you not revive us again? Notice the word again. Will you not revive us again? You did it before. Will you do it again? And he hopes that God will. You know what? Because God is a God who made an agreement with the nation, which we call a covenant. And he said, I will make a covenant with you. And I will deliver you from your enemies. But you do have to, you know, be trying to do the right thing. And if you don't, you do have to repent. So he says, will you revive us again? That, so that your people may rejoice in you. I like that. That's a great little manipulation phrase. Will you revive us again? God, can you imagine God? Oh, I should not. So we can rejoice in you. And, uh, of course, when they are delivered, they will rejoice because they'll realize that it's God who has done it. Notice where the rejoicing takes place. In you. See that? Verse 6. They've been looking for joy and love in all the wrong places. I think I heard a country song or something like that. Yeah. I forget who was saying that. But it was. Who was saying that? Well, I'm glad nobody knows that. Way under Willie. Way under Willie or one of, them, one of the boys. That's right. So anyway. <laughs> so, so the rejoicing is in the Lord. And they've been looking for their joy in other things. The ways of the world. And so that's what he asked for. He hopes that that is going to happen. And then look what else it says in verse 7. He makes a very bold request in verse 7. He says, show us your mercy. Yahweh, God of the covenant. And that word mercy, loving compassion, loving kindness, is a covenant word. Uh, keep your covenant, Lord, and show us compassion. Show us love. Reach out and deliver us. O oh, Lord, uses the word for God that, uh, that a word of God's self-revelation. When God revealed himself to Moses, Moses said, who should I say sent me? To tell him Yahweh sent you. Jehovah sent you. And he uses that, that covenant word title for God. He says, you know, keep your covenant. Show us mercy. Uh, and then he says in verse 7, and grant us your salvation or your deliverance. Uh, to grant deliverance means that uh, it's a gift. It's something you just certainly don't deserve. And uh, would you just uh, do it based on your covenant, your agreement with us? Grant us this deliverance, this deliverance from this Babylonian captivity. And then he makes a, 
I don't know if this is a promise or an expectation or what in verse 8. He says this, I will hear what the Lord will speak. What the Lord will speak. See, that will speak. He expects God to speak. And he says, and I will, I will listen to what he says. I will hear it with the indication I will obey. Whatever God says, you know, as a nation, we will obey what God says. Now, in verse 7, he says, show. See? Show. In verse 8, he says, speak. Show has to do with seeing, has to do with eyes. Speak has to do with hearing, has to do with the ears. This is God revealing himself. God reveals himself in mighty acts that can be seen. God reveals himself through words that can be heard. Speak and I will hear. He is expecting God to speak. How did God speak in the Old Testament time? Through prophets. And God was warning Israel over and over again not to fall into idolatry. Not to stop trusting God. Not to be corrupt political and religious leaders. And they were not listening to God speak through his prophets. And I believe that the, the prophet that was speaking at this time was Jeremiah. And so he says, verse 8, I will hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak what? Peace. Notice there's a difference between the anger there. There's going to be peace. Uh, where the enmity has been re removed. Who's he going to speak peace to? To his people. And to his saints. Better, to his people. That is, or even his to his saints. That's who he's going to speak to. And he had spoken to them through the prophet Jeremiah. So this is the other passage I want to show you. So keep your fingers marked here and go back to the prophet Jeremiah. Just keep moving right in your Bible. And you will find Isaiah and Jeremiah. And when you get to Jeremiah, look at Jeremiah chapter 26. This is a warning that had been given by Jeremiah that they did not listen to. And as a result, they got in trouble. And we won't read a lot of this, but I'll give you just a few verses of it. It makes sense. So look at verse 4. Jeremiah 26, verse 4. And God says to Jeremiah, He says, And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, look, if you will not listen to me, meaning obey me, to walk in my Lord law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, to whom I sent you, both rising up early and sending them, but you've not heeded. Then I will make this house like what? Shiloh. See, that's where I think the context fits in here. Like Shiloh. And I will make every city a curse to all the nations of the world. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. See, that's the words are always coming to God's people, the saints. That the priests and the prophets and all the people, and that would be false prophets, seized Jeremiah and said, You shall surely 
die. They want to get rid of Jeremiah because he was telling them to get right with God and they didn't want to get right with God. Well, you know what happens? They end up in captivity. They do not heed the word of Jeremiah. Now look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Because now Jeremiah gives another word in the midst of their captivity. And again, we'll just look at a couple verses. And look at verse 30, chapter 30, verse 10, for example. <clears throat> Jeremiah now is speaking to the nation. He says, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, of, be dismayed O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar. I will deliver you and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you or deliver you, though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, yet I will, make, will not make a complete end of you. He says, oh, you, know, you have to be corrected, but you, know, you will not be destroyed. Then if you look over verse 18, thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places. And then in verse 22, And you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. So, here's a word that comes that God is going to deliver. There's going to be correction. They need to repent. And the psalmist says, I will listen to you speak through your prophet. So look at Psalm 85 as we close out this. The psalm, look what he says in verse 8. He says, I will hear the Lord who will speak, for he will speak peace, just like Jeremiah did, to the people and to his saints, just like Jeremiah did. And here's a warning, however. He's going to deliver, but let them not turn back to folly. <laughs> I'm going to deliver you, but don't do this again. Don't turn back to folly. You know what folly is? Folly is doing things without thinking about the consequences. It's when a guy has this great big scheme, he's going to build this great big tower, and then the money runs out. It stays half built. It's called you know, Anderson's Folly or whatever. And we've all seen that. That's what a folly is. Doing things without forethought. So don't fall back into folly. Don't do those foolish things again. Look at verse 9. Surely, here the psalmist is making a, either a, an announcement or the prophet's making an announcement. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Why? What end? That glory may dwell in our land. That's the Shekinah glory of God may again dwell in the land of Israel. So you have two that's. In verse 6, you have a that. And in verse 7, you have a that. You have two purpose statements. Look at verse 6. Will you not revive us again? That, or so that, in order that your people may rejoice in you. And then verse 9. Surely his deliverance is near to those who fear him. That, so that, in order that, glory might dwell in our land. So he says salvation is near. In verse 9, it sounds a lot like John the Baptist preaching, doesn't it? That the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's within your reach, it's within your grasp. Uh, it's right around the corner, that's what he says here in verse 9. Salvation, deliverance is near. It's near to who? To those what? 
who fear him. And uh, so not everybody gets delivered all the time. And, uh, but to those who fear him, the remnant, there's a remnant who fear God, who repent. That the glory may be in the land. Look at sort of the result of the basis for all this. Verse 10, he says, Mercy and truth have met together. Loving compassion, that's God's loving compassion, and truth are united. Before they repented, God's loving compassion and truth were divided. Israel knew the truth, but it wasn't keeping the truth. And therefore God's Loving kindness was not put into action. When there's disobedience, there's no mercy. But now, truth and mercy have come together. They're united. That's what it takes in order for there to be the deliverance. Look at the end of verse 10. Righteousness and peace have kissed. They reconciled with each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Before, the people rejected God's righteousness, and peace was not possible. Now they accept His righteousness, they repent, and guess what? Now there is peace. So there's this reconciliation. Now peace and righteousness are like kissing cousins. Sort of. Because the people have turned to righteousness. And in a sense, the psalmist's prayer is being answered. So something like that. Now look at the future result. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Truth shall spring out of the earth. It will blossom like a flower. It will bloom like a flower. Verse 11. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. Truth shall bloom out of the earth like a flower. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. It's like the stars that are you know, hanging over looking down on earth. So you have the truth that's from below coming up and the righteousness from above which is coming down. So what's happening is that the people now are embracing truth and it's blooming. They're no longer rejecting truth. So it's really flourishing now. It's coming up. And God, therefore, is looking down from heaven. Look at verse 12. The Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Now, literally, this would mean the Lord would be providing rain, and the land would be producing fruit. If you took it literally, but I think this is probably more of a metaphor. He's not talking about rain and fruit, literal fruit or plants. <laughs> the earth or the land that he's talking about is the land of Israel. And the fruit is the fruit of righteousness. Most likely. But they're getting back on board. His people are getting back on board. And they have produced the fruit of repentance. And then verse 13. We see the end result. Righteousness will go before him. That's God. And shall make his footsteps our pathway. God is on the march. He's walking in righteousness. And we're following behind, right in righteousness. And there's the nation getting behind God, trusting God wherever He leads, the nation follows. 
That is going to be the end result. Very similar in many ways to what Psalm 1 says. You know, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, and all this kind of stuff. If you look at it, it's pathway to the way of the Lord. And uh, so this is the same with the nation. So, you know the story. God does defeat the Babylonians. He defeats them. The Persians defeat the Babylonian Empire. And uh, a remnant of people come back. Most Jews did not come back from the Babylonian captivity. They stayed in Babylon. They had married and had children. They assimilated in the Babylonian culture. But there was a remnant of people who came back to Jerusalem, which at this time was the, now the capital, and they refurbished the temple and uh, reestablished uh, worship. And probably the uh, choir sang this song talking about the great deliverance that God has done at Shiloh and now has done again. Uh, but something was different when they came back. God's presence wasn't there in the, te in the temple. They had a temple, but His presence wasn't. They went through the motions. And then you know what they did? They went through the motions. That was the problem. They returned to their folly. And then instead of giving the best offerings to God, they would give a, a lamb with one eye and who's crippled. And they were supposed to find the best and give it to God. And they were just looking out for themselves. And so, what happens to these Jews in Jerusalem? Rome comes in and they end up under Roman captivity. But then, Around 30 A.D., John the Baptist, he says, your deliverance is near. Deliverance is nigh. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is baptized. And then the gospel writer says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And tabernacled amongst us. Same Word. And we beheld His glory, Shekinah glory, as the only begotten of the Father. So in a sense, ultimately, the restoration of God's people is found through Jesus Christ <laughs> and the new covenant that He established with the nation of Israel, which incorporates even Gentiles into it, and that's why we're here today. So... That's Psalm 85 as I interpret it. Next week we're get back to a Psalm of David, which is Psalm 86, where David thanks God for standing with him in good times and good times. Father, we thank you for the kingdom of God, which is within our grasp as well. Secured by Jesus through the blood of a, a new covenant. And now, Lord, the your presence is tabernacled in us, the church. We are the temple of God. And now, Lord, help us to learn the lessons of Psalm 85. Help us not to return to folly. We think of the seven churches of Asia Minor who were on fire at one time and now none exist. And Ichabod has been written over every one of those churches. Help that not to be our church. Help us to do our part as a remnant. Those who fear you, 
and those who walk in the paths of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.